You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 770 CHQR. Welcome to The Strong Room, presented by Macmillan Estate Planning. I'm Wayne Nelson. On today's program, we're going to be talking about planning for beneficiaries with mental illness. Joining us today is Macmillan Estate Planning Estate Planner, Martine Tollefson and Ken Wynn. All right, let's talk a little bit about mental illness because there's a bit of a stigma around it, isn't there? Yeah, there sure is. A lot of people are dealing with mental illness and more and more families have someone that they're involved with. Maybe it's a beneficiary or a friend or a colleague that's affected by it. So what I find is that some of the people that come to our office, they're concerned as parents, who's going to take care of their child or that child can't inherit any money outright. So what are they going to do? Right. Well, that is a good question. So what are they going to do? We have some case studies for you. We have a lady that came into our office and um, she's recently widowed. So she was really concerned about her son, Charlie, who has anxiety disorders and some addiction issues and seems to be more and more common these days that there is children like that. And so even though he qualifies for AISH, it's, it's a concern whether he should get money or not. And she doesn't think that he should get money because he's going to be using it for harm, harmful substances and things like that. So, Yeah, there's not that capacity to understand what is the, the best way of, of handling financial affairs. And, and some people, they just don't have that capacity on their own. So, Ken, how do we deal with that situation when we have a, a child, and it could be an adult child, someone in their... 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s, mm-hmm. uh, who comes before you uh, with that family concern? How do you deal with it? There are a few things we could do. Uh, generally, um, of course, one of the first things that we could do is we could directly gift the estate or the inheritance to the uh, individual. However, there are downsides to something like this. Of course, um, the individual, you know, ideally would not be able to handle the money. Um, they may have. Uh, they may even spend the money extravagantly or inappropriately uh, and, and blow that money away. Um, and of course, that would not be your wish. No. So are there steps that can be put into place to deal with that situation? Well, another option, of course, is that you could gift the inheritance that this uh, individual is expected to receive to a, a, fa- a trusted friend or a family member. Um, and this person could, uh, in return, uh, manage the assets on behalf of the, uh, the beneficiary. The advantage of uh, using a trusted friend or a family member is that this person would hold the asset and manage it on behalf of the uh, individual. Uh, of course, there is still some downside to this uh, uh, solution. Uh, one of the downsides is that it's not written down, so there's no legal obligation for the trusted friend or family member to, to do so. And so you really are relying on them as a trusted friend or family member. Yeah. Martine, is there a way around that? I mean, is that something that could be spelled out in the will or in the various options that you have associated with the will? Mm -hmm. So typically what we'll do is we will design a trust in the will. And so this trust will be discretionary, but we can kind of make it as restrictive 
as we need it to be. So for instance, the person would decide who should be the trustee of the trust. They would have to manage it on behalf of the beneficiary, but it doesn't become assets of that beneficiary. It's separated from them. So they still benefit from it, but they aren't in control of it. The trustee is in control of it. So the trustee will decide how much money that person should get. And so when we factor in AISH programs and other government programs like that and right, other where provinces... There, where there's a cap on how much money someone can have an income. Exactly. So um, we can design it so that we can factor that in and that person can still have access to those programs because they're very beneficial and important for their life and they get help through those. So. Are there any checks and balances within the system somehow to ensure that that trusted friend, trusted family member uh, is doing the job that they have been tasked with? Well, if we write it into the will, they're obligated by that legal document to follow the rules that are in it. As well, the public trustee is another check and balance. So for instance, if somebody saw that it was being abused somehow, the public trustee could get involved with that situation. There is rules around how a trustee is supposed to act. Absolutely. And as part of that whole overall planning process, every individual, every situation is unique. That's right. And so it's very important to talk to your estate planner, a lawyer about the situation and make sure a trust is the right thing for you to have in your will. All right. Ken, as an estate planner, do you see this happening on a more frequent basis now as we're dealing with aging parents? Absolutely. Uh, we do see it more and more often in that, you know, substance abuse is uh, one of the main challenge that family faces uh, with regards to their children, um, especially as a family uh, become, I guess, more affluent. We'll see uh, that their children have access or be influenced by their friends and peer group that will... Um, be a detriment, really, to their own financial well-being. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they really don't have, so they may have mental capacity, but the worry is that they may not have the financial competency or understanding to make sure that whatever they've been left with lasts. That's right. A lot of our families will put some restrictions in place for their trust so that there's always that check and balance. So, you know, even though the, their inheritance is meant for the beneficiaries, it's got a little bit more walls, so to speak, that that helps so that the children don't waste it. And that brings up another point too, and I'm kind of getting off topic a little bit, but this doesn't always apply just to the mentally disabled person or someone with mental illness. Is it not true that whoever gets left a certain amount of money may not have the financial wherewithal? And so now we're putting on some some additional checks and balances Mm -hmm. for someone because they have uh, a mental illness. So it's important that uh, whoever is is dealing with your estate in the now while you're alive walks you through the questions that you want to ask yourself about your beneficiaries, your children, who have whatever age they are, you know, that you make sure that you're going through the right kind of steps to make sure that your trust is designed properly. And then also it should be checked once in a while. Because what I find is we'll meet with someone, we'll do their will, a few years later, they say, you know what? I thought my kids would be able to deal with this, but they can't. You know, there's changes. You always have to check every few years to make sure we're still on the right track with the estate plan. Ken, that brings up, uh, Martine makes a good point. How often 
should a will be revisited? Is there some kind of a standard time frame? Well, there isn't any standard time frame, but generally we recommend three to five years to have a quick glance at your will to make sure there's nothing in there that changed significantly. Other times that might warrant sooner revision to the will would be, you know, if there's a larger life-changing event that may have happened, such as, you know, new grandchildren or death in a family member or marriage breakdown or something like that, we definitely want to take a look at the will to make sure that none of those events or changes impact uh, what we have uh, wished for our estate. And that same thing could be applied to, and as you mentioned, a change in the family dynamic might have been some sort of traumatic accident Mm -hmm. or injury that now leaves that person who was previously capable of looking after their own affairs now not able to do so. And that's another good reason for doing that. That's right. And it's also important to have the other documents in place as well that, you know, if uh, that does happen to you, maybe it's a sudden event or even dementia that you have the documents in place for while you're still alive, but you're not able to look after your affairs. So what if you have a stroke or something like that and you have this disabled family member or, you know, one that can't take care of their own affairs either? Make sure you have your enduring power of attorney and your personal directive also be harmonious with your will because your your estate has to still look after you, but you want to make sure that that other person doesn't take advantage or that there's checks and balances there for that person as well. All right. Earlier, you made a reference to knowing what your options are, some questions that uh, should be asked, and we'll get to that, but let's take a break right now. We'll be back in a moment with Macmillan Estate Planners, Martine Tollefson and Ken Wynn. I'm Wayne Nelson. You're listening to The Strong Room on 770 CHQR. <music> 